The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Who do you think you are, boy? I've been here and here a few more years than you have. I didn't get this far by acting like a damn fool. No, just by burying your head in the sand. You don't know anything. Now, I marched that Selma. I said at the lunch counters, I had the dogs turned on me, the fire hoses, the tear gas. Now, don't tell me about sticking my head in the sand. Well, excuse me, sir. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, there's a lot you don't know. I'm all for standing up for what you believe in, but I'm not ready to become a martyr. I tried to do something once, and I got the scars to back me up. See? Look at all the good it did us. So you just give up? Look, times change. Politics change. Now, we, we keep our heads down, and it's all blow over eventually. You really believe that? Can't you see where this is heading? You see how I beat up these people up when they come in here? What about the ones who don't even make it this far? Ones that are left in dumpsters, left over in bean fields with their heads cracked open. No. Nothing. Nothing blows over. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, January 6th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Under any tyranny... Nothing blows over. And those still expecting this COVID crisis to blow over at some point in time are delusional. We're now entering the third year of a two-week temporary lockdown to flatten the curve. An imaginary curve based not on healthcare outcomes, but on the efficacy of an already flattened socialist healthcare system that has been rationing healthcare since its inception. The fact that so many continue to believe that what is happening around us today is a spontaneous reaction to some healthcare crisis is alarming. Because what appears to be a spontaneous local or even national concern, you know, a reaction to a crisis based on local conditions such as case counts or variant viruses, is not. It's not that. It is global and it is a 100% politically motivated crisis. That there is still an effective majority apparently blind to this reality has itself increasingly become a topic of discussion. Hashtag mass psychosis is trending in Canada according to a tweet, 67.6k tweets, forwarded to my attention by Paul McKeever with his comment, It's about time. And with the new year now underway, it's also about time that we took another look at the big picture of this COVID tyranny, which coincidentally is being ramped up at the same time more people are slowly awakening. 
Our journey begins right after we encourage you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. And I'd like to kick off 2022 by thanking those of you who did financially support Just Right Media in 2021, including Conrad L., Robin V., Stephen L., Todd D., Rob S., Trevor D., Mark V., Patrick D., Brent L., Mike D., Ashley R., Clifford K., Sherry G., Troy K., and of course, longtime supporter and listener Murray T., who has also provided our starting point for today's discussion. Now, the day after our December 23rd broadcast featuring just music that's just right, Murray sent us his following comments and thoughts on what happens to be the big picture of our COVID tyranny. Quote, Hey guys, thank you so much for playing my song on your show. That was a very cool thing to do. I think I've listened twice to this show, but want to go over it some more. I have thought a lot about trying to write songs that express some positive political, philosophical, and epistemological ideas. Unfortunately, due to COVID, my band has pretty much fallen apart, and I'm on my own now. I am indeed still listening to your show, and in fact, listen to each of them at least twice, and sometimes I even take notes if I really want to solidify something. I've been meaning to write for a while, but every time I try to write something down, I get overwhelmed with so much stuff going on in my head and in the world. There are two subjects I've really been contemplating lately, one of them related to this most recent musical podcast, and the other is about cynicism. First, I'll ask about the related one, and I'll call it the chicken or the egg. As the last year has progressed, I find myself and a lot of others asking the question, what can we do? What is the most productive way to effect change in our world? Does a person run for office, call their MLA, write a book, start a podcast, deliver flyers, attend a rally? I think you'll say the answer to this question is just yes, but sometimes too many options cause a person to freeze in place. And besides, it makes me wonder, what is the driver of public opinion and what causes a society to be what it is? If we can answer this, I think we can choose an appropriate course of action, or at least put it in perspective. From what I've observed, I think the answer actually is in the art and the conversations we have with our friends and neighbors. I think the problem is not that Jason Kenney did X or Y, or that Trump tweeted something mean again, or Trudeau said something stupid again. (laughs) I think all of these things are just symptoms and reactions to the mindset of the people, the zeitgeist. I think this also supports my theory that when people think they are talking about politics, they're really just talking about public relations and personalities. This seems apparent when I listen to conservatives strategize about winning an election and discuss very little about group ethics, but everything about messaging. A lot of my thoughts on this is influenced from reading ominous parallels about the effect of the intellectuals on a society. 
I get a bit confused as I think there is a crossover between the zeitgeist and aesthetics. Would it be more accurate to just refer to this as culture? The other piece of evidence is that the Renaissance preceded the Enlightenment. So this indicates to me that changes to the aesthetics preceded the intellectual thought and possibly influenced the change of politics. Or perhaps I should think of them as part of the same group. It's all encompassed in philosophy and is all embraced at once together. Seems like a lot of data to sort through all at once without an order. So based on this, would you think the greatest influence occurs in the zeitgeist and aesthetics and therefore writing a song, having a conversation, or delivering a flyer could be the greatest influence a single person can have? Quit worrying about the big stuff like running for an election or starting a political party. It's not the politician we need to speak to, it's our neighbor. Maybe a song will influence someone to take up these larger projects. The other subject I have is cynicism, which I've heard you mention regarding Chris Skye and balancing the good and the perfect, but maybe I'll leave that for another day. Would love your thoughts, but you've already put out plenty of material and I'll come to an answer on my own, so please feel no obligation to even respond. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Murray. Uh, you know... The zeitgeist is merely a broad term, I think, describing the spirit of the day. The mindset of the people, as you put it. And in practice, spirit, quote-unquote, or mindset, refers to values. It is values that are reflected in art, in music, in literature. And it's not a one-way street. Like you said, it, it works in every direction. Does art reflect life, or does life reflect art? It goes both ways. Each individual's experience is different in this regard, and how one arrives at some philosophical maturity at some point in life is nothing you can prescribe. But you can lead a horse to water, but don't expect him to drink it. Could cause about a cynicism. <laughs> and when it comes to making a distinction between the culture and the zeitgeist, just think of the culture as being the climate and the zeitgeist as being the weather. And, you know, cynicism is often the result of expectations versus realities. Like, for example, balancing the good with the perfect. The quote-unquote balancing act there is, again, one of definitions and distinctions. Because one never balances the good, one compromises the good by doing the bad. And we're back to a values discussion again, aren't we? And as to the big question, what is the most productive way to affect change? Well, that's an interesting dilemma given the way it's been worded, and I'm glad you worded it that way. If the question had read, what is the most efficient and quick way to affect change, I would have answered, at the point of a gun, and would cite what has happened over the past two years as evidence of that means of affecting change, from the old normal to the new normal in a matter of mere months, and on a global scale, no less. But in asking what is the most productive way to affect change, you've hit the nail on the head by first eliminating the use of force option. And in being productive, the focus turns from the short term to the long term, because in the long term, you want to have something to show for the work and time that you've invested in your efforts. Otherwise, what have you produced? I can say from personal experience that I have participated in all of the suggested activities and approaches to affecting change that you have placed in your questions. And each has its pluses 
and its minuses. But had I not recorded and documented those experiences and then had them placed on the site of the Freedom Party of Ontario, then all my efforts would have gone to waste and nothing would have been produced. And here's the critical point. Something that has been produced has the capability of being used again and being useful to others who in turn can themselves continue to engage in meaningful and productive political activity. But if we're talking about changing a culture, changing the entrenched values of a mindset, then there's no one way to do that. No single individual is capable of undertaking such a challenge on his or her own. So that's just one way I look at the whole situation of a productive approach. One of the reasons I started a political party. I didn't go into it expecting to win any quick elections. I expected to create a body of knowledge and experience and philosophy that is needed to live up to the name of what we call the party, Freedom Party. Now also in reaction to our show on which we played just music that's just right, got this one from regular listener and supporter Trevor D. who wrote, Why is the S word now allowed, but the F word is still not? (laughs) Well, I wrote back to Trevor and explained to him that our policy on which words we do not allow has not changed. But the S word is one of those that has occasional exceptions. It has been aired on several past broadcasts, depending upon its context and meaning. Some of our guests have used the word, and it has appeared in other audio bites. However, the two words we continue to prohibit... (laughs) and that's our choice, are the F-words and the N-word, which were both used frequently in the tune that was referenced. Nevertheless, we actually made an exception to the N-word on one past broadcast to best illustrate our objection to its use and why. Now, I want to make it perfectly clear that when I delete certain expletives, it's not out of some sense of my personally being offended in some way. Nor is it because of some dogmatic, predetermined set of speech rules. Interestingly, I've noticed the S-word being used more and more by podcasters and broadcasters who usually never use it. Even religious guys like Stu Peters. And I don't blame him when he used it. But if I were to share one of those particular commentaries on this show, I would still delete those words, usually by simply silencing them. And I realize that most people can figure out which word was silenced. That's not the point of this. And I do recall that even when Donald Trump himself used the S word, we deleted that from our record of it as well. This isn't about censorship. There were a lot of considerations in mind when we originally established certain unwritten rules and practices regarding the words we would or would not air. Some of these relate to our rating status, as it might appear on various platforms from which our show is accessible, and to address some of the issues raised by Murray, some considerations actually relate to our culture itself. And most interestingly, from my point of view, to the aesthetic and artistic value of the show as a product, something that has been produced, something that can retain its intrinsic value as an artistic reflection of our culture well into the future. It's one of the reasons that our show includes so many audio bites from various TV shows, movies, and comedies, in addition to the philosophical and political discussions by others that we feature. We're providing cultural reflections in artistic form of the principles and ideas that we discuss each and every week on this show. 
In any case, after reassuring Trevor that we hadn't changed any language policies on the show, well, sure enough, Trevor wrote back, Hello, Bob. I can't believe I didn't remember this first. And with that, he forwarded a link to what we are about to hear next. And as you'll see, I've gone back to my old ways of deleting the expletives we would all expect from the late, yet eternally brilliant, George Carlin. There is left that word, that group of words that we, uh... Hey. Well, they're your words, gang, and I praise them, too, because they are sort of fun, just as a hobby, if nothing else. These words are only, uh, let's see, let's call them this. They're uh, the words that we can't say all the time. I find that to be about the most comfortable um, umbrella, you know? Uh, they're just words that we can say all the time. Sometimes, yes, sometimes, but not all the time. When you're a kid, you can't say them at all. <laughs> Not one. None. That's it. No. But you do keep growing. They can't stop that. Pretty soon the words hell and damn break through. <laughs> hey, I didn't get hit. I know. <laughs> then dad tells you a joke with shit in it. Don't tell your mom, I said, Dan. <laughs> Why not? Well, you can't use them words all the time. I, I was, my trouble was I wanted a list. I didn't think it was asking much. Here are these words I'm not supposed to say. Let's have a look at them. I'll be glad to avoid them if I could just see them and know what they are. You gotta say them to find out what they are, man. <laughs> oh, fuck. All right, hey, enough, man, a list, please, Ma. Sure, that's all you need when you're six years old now. Here's the list of words your dad and I don't ever want to hear you say. Oh, thanks, Ma. Hey, that'll save me an ass kicking, you know? <laughs> There's no list. So, enough of trial and error, goddamn. Now, there are different places where you can't use words, right? I mean, sometimes the minister's wife is one. You definitely don't say them to the minister's wife. And all of those thousands of other places <laughs> that, you know, yes, like, hey, come on, mixed company here. Hey, there's ladies and kids here. Hey, six. I got a really filthy joke for you, Bill. But there's a lady here. <laughs> oh, that's okay. She's filthy, too. Go ahead, Glenn. Let's hear it. Depends on who you're with, right? They're just the words we can't say all the time. Now I wanted my list to reflect an area I was interested in. The time that you can't say them all the time that I picked was radio and television time. That's one of the places where we can't use them and uh, I guess that's largely because uh, television is uh, paid for by private industry and uh, regulated by the government. So, you know, you think of what, think of what those two groups are doing, <laughs> even to each other, you know. And, uh, so you can imagine what they did to radio and television, right? They turned it into a billboard and it belongs to the Brillo and Biscuit folks. 
And uh, that's all it'll ever be. And so as a result, they want to restrict your language some of the time. Not all of the time. Now there's a haunting thought that goes a long way towards understanding our own zeitgeist today, doesn't it? Corporations and governments working in tandem. Uh, definition, please. Ah, oh, yes, fascism. It's beginning to look a lot like fascism, as that old Christmas carol goes. <laughs> and with that in mind, I want to now address a previous email sent to us this past August, again by Murray T., because it certainly pertains to our theme today as well, and I'd been meaning to respond to this for quite a while. And Murray at that time wrote, Hey guys, I have a question I think you might be able to clarify. These days, the subject of politics is brought up quite frequently, and my typical initial response is to say that when most people talk about politics, they're not really talking about politics, but instead are discussing public relations and personalities. Politics is actually a discussion about group ethics, which is a branch of philosophy. Discussing a mean tweet about a celebrity's body weight has nothing to do with group ethics. Discussions about individual rights or the greater good is about group ethics. Almost every time, this gets the discussion going in the direction I want and opens ears for a discussion about the branches of philosophy. To my surprise, almost everyone I talk to is quite interested as they have never heard of anything like it and they let me go on. I first explain metaphysics to the best of my ability, then move on to epistemology while explaining that it is dependent on metaphysics. This works out quite well and I can see that people get this connection and having these new concepts and new ways to categorize their thought, they're able to determine which type they align with, Plato or Aristotle. I run into a bit of trouble with the third branch of individual ethics. I guess that would be altruism versus rational self-interest. I can discuss a fair bit about those, but have trouble relating them back to epistemology and metaphysics, which I think could be an important link to make. I better get back to some Ayn Rand nonfiction, although these days it's hard to break away from the urgent current events. However, I do have a history question. My understanding as per Wikipedia is that the Renaissance, 15th and 16th centuries, preceded the Enlightenment, 17th and 18th centuries. This would mean that the culture seems to change in the reverse order of the branches of philosophy. Now, of course, this relates to what we discussed earlier. And Marie goes on, I explain that this makes sense, as in culture, it is the artist, comedian, musician, or court jester that has more quote-unquote leeway in the things they're allowed to say. So this would be the first influence of a new way of thinking, through the arts, the aesthetics. This would be followed by the intellectuals, and we can see where it might go from there. So my question for now, I guess, does that sound about right to you? And if so, I think the rest of my argument that this rediscovery of Aristotle through the arts led to the Enlightenment and eventually to the creation of the United States. I also explain please correct me if you disagree, that it's more important for the individual citizen to understand these concepts and to apply them in picking their candidates through voting than it is to try to grasp all the minutiae details of daily so-called politics as they understand them. For our minds to be able to function without chaos, we need to be able to categorize and conceptualize with precise words and definitions. Most people that I get this far with seem to relate to this idea. 
If you have the time, let me know if you think this is incorrect in any way, as I always learn so much from you, end quote. Well, Murray, I think we've reached the point where the student is now becoming the master. <laughs> There's nothing you've expressed here with which I would disagree, and it seems that given your proper epistemological approach to resolving your questions, you're going to arrive at the correct and valid answers at some point. As to relating the, the struggle between altruism versus rational self-interest back to epistemology and metaphysics, I can only offer this. Epistemologically, the challenge is to employ the proper definition of altruism as being the sacrifice of a higher value to a lower value and establishing a proper distinction between rational self-interest versus the concept of selfishness as most people understand it. And the connection to metaphysics, or I guess to reality, is this. Altruism and rational self-interest cannot coexist because reality does not allow for contradictions to exist as Robert Vaughn and I discussed a few weeks ago, if you'll recall. Because the former represents the loss or giving up of a value, while the latter represents the effort to gain a value. So those are two opposite things. As to your history question, you've cited a very interesting and very valid phenomenon. We touched upon it earlier. Awareness of the particulars of the values that a society may adopt very rarely would precede the adoption of those values. After all, Adam Smith didn't describe the economic principles of the wealth of nations until they were already becoming demonstrated in action. The hierarchy of philosophical structure, from metaphysics to epistemology to ethics to politics and finally to aesthetics, should never be confused with some kind of logical order in which either individuals or society arrive at their own values. But the field of aesthetics, meaning art, music, literature, stories, is indeed the usual starting point of any individual's journey towards enlightenment. Consider that in the development of a single individual, as a child growing up, one's philosophical awareness begins with what might be categorized as art or culture in the field of aesthetics. For example, simple nursery rhymes and songs and rhythms and, of course, stories often expressed in fairy tales and moral lessons. In fact, you could argue that music is a tool of mass formation, as can be witnessed in everything from religious ceremonies to rock concerts. The particular songs we selected as being just right a couple of weeks ago were as much an example of art imitating life as life imitating art. After all, art and music and literature are all human means of communication and expression, no different in this regard than simple conversation, except in one critical respect. It's a one-way communication from the artist to the person appreciating his art. And speaking of mass formation, which, since expressed by Dr. Desma, and as featured on our own show, It's Psycho, several weeks back, has become a major talking point. As Paul McKeever noted while saying it's about time, hashtag mass psychosis is trending in Canada. And that trend is here explained by the amazing Polly on her January 2nd show on mass formation psychosis. Perhaps you've heard of this thing, this psychological concept that's going around called mass formation psychosis. It was first brought to the fore 
by a guy called Professor Matthias Desmet. He's a professor of clinical psychology out of Belgium, and he testified in front of Reiner Fulmich's Corona Committee, where he is gathering evidence from experts all over the world uh, to try to bring a, a sort of a crimes against humanity class action lawsuit against the the world health officials who have put our societies through some tremendous life-changing strain over the reaction to this supposed pandemic. And this theory of mass formation psychosis has blown up in the last day because a guy called Robert Malone went on Joe Rogan's podcast and he talked about it. And you see, the reason I believe it is so popular is because everybody's been grappling for a reason as to why their relatives and friends and seemingly sensible sane people all around them have gone absolutely sideways ever since COVID came on the scene. This is a sentiment we see everywhere. You know, it's widespread. The first condition that Matthias Desmet says has to be there in order to uh, create a future mass hysteria mass uh, formation event is a lack of social bond and social isolation. And when I look at the world pre-COVID and of course now too, I'm seeing all of these factors here play into that social isolation. Social media, smartphones 24-7, this is, it creates a detachment, inauthenticity, fake intimacy, and stunted communication. And I would say actually that censorship has done the same thing. For people not really paying attention, they may not have noticed the subtle creep of censorship, especially on campuses and also in the news media and social media way before COVID. But what this does is it changes um, communication fundamentally between people because not all of us will share the same references. Some of us won't have been exposed to certain material because it was censored before we became aware of it. I think migration, both mass migration and the type of migration that people do for their careers and schooling nowadays, has also contributed to social isolation. And finally, the denigrating of faith, particularly Christianity in our Christian-based societies, has obviously contributed to a breakdown of social bonding. Because face it, churches were kind of like extended family. People attended churches for many reasons, um, not just to worship, but also to have a sense of community. So yes, I say social isolation was a big deal during uh, the run-up to COVID many, many years. Did we have a lot of free-floating anxiety in the years leading up to COVID? I would say so. Here's a short list of what we were all dealing with. We had the climate emergency. Greta actually goes out there and says, I want you to panic. Grown adults were saying we have 12 years to save the earth. How do you think this makes young people feel? And Keep in mind, this was this, this was a big messaging thing going all the way back to Al Gore time. So a, a whole generation of people has grown up with this sense of somehow an impending crisis that they are partly responsible for. That's a lot of pressure. And they've attacked our young people in, in too many ways to count. Transgender and extreme sex education in school, it's confused them. It's embarrassed them. It's brought them to a level they shouldn't be at. Their, their, their minds are not ready for. They're doing this thing called post-birth abortions now. 
That's just a word trick. That is literal infanticide. And you know, I don't want to waste too much time on going over all the items on this slide, but they're all very significant in our culture. Identity politics, you know, accusing men, masculine men of being toxic. Apparently, if you're white, you're just automatically privileged. This denies the white poverty that is everywhere. The transgender adults, they want you to call them by their preferred pronoun and the law steps in and tries to force you to go along with their delusion. You know, and then, of course, the riots, the burning down of uh, entire city blocks, the takeover of entire city blocks by Antifa declaring autonomous zones, and the defund the police movement, of course. Just absolute insanity. So yeah, we've got propaganda, we've got the open borders, we've got fake hate crimes, and probably real hate crimes as well. What happens is, if you believe in all this stuff, if you haven't seen through the propaganda and the fake news, you get so stressed and anxious that you need safe spaces available for you in college campuses and elsewhere. And if you don't believe in all of this and you want to have debates about it, you are censored and shunned. And so you have to go around the world pretending to uh, accept all of this, knowing that if you speak out about it, you are going to be in trouble. It's, it's extreme, and the stress is on both sides, whether you're liberal, conservative, or neither, neither one. This stress is everywhere. So Matthias Desmet's uh, list, we can check off, we can definitely check off free-floating anxiety. Now I want to go back to lack of meaning-making and lack of sense-making on Desmet's list of four conditions. And now I should say, in his talks about it, he addresses the fact that um, there's a, a lot of people who are dissatisfied with their jobs and their daily lives, and there's a lot of prescriptions for antidepressants. And of course, we could talk about debt loads. People are under tremendous pressure for debt, and the housing market is crazy. So there's all these, there's a lot of other stresses that I'm not mentioning here. And when we look to our leaders, to address these problems, whether they be local or federal or whoever, they don't make any sense in their explanations either. So there's lack of meaning in terms of a meaningless job, but there's also to me lack of meaning in terms of how are we going to solve and address these problems? And the answers we get are outrageous. We have incredible hypocrisy first of all, from our world leaders who berate us day and night about climate change and needing to, you know, forego using plastic straws. And yet they fly hundreds and hundreds of people to these meetings multiple times a year, causing all kinds of pollution. When people ask politicians or academics or scientists, quote unquote, questions now, they regularly avoid answering. I mean, they they technically say words, but the words don't really make any sense. That's called word salad. And that, to me, it will drive you crazy if you listen to it long enough. Hey, how's your Aunt Minnie? Fine, how's yours? How's my what? How should I know? I've never seen your what. Wait a minute. All right, let's start over. Ladies and gentlemen, it's nice to see all of you again. 
I it, couldn't hold that, that you could see all of me while you got some kind of x-ray camera. Oh, you dang uh -huh. dog. That's a little idiom I use now and then. Just... Well, now I'll just bet those little idioms take great pictures. Oh, come on, I have I'd no... like about a dozen eight by ten. I buses. have no x-ray camera and no one's able to see through, through, through you. <laughs> well, that's, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah. Finally, lack of meaning in sense-making is now so bad that it's coming at us from science, the realm of science and expertise. Right now, we have scientism, which is more like a religion. It's dogmatic. It wants consensus. Uh, it, it's faith-based. It creates heretics if you question them. And it's agenda-driven. It has an outcome in mind. Now, science shouldn't be any of those things, but I think you can see around us how it is right now. Okay, so now we've got the first three conditions met. And the fourth is free-floating frustration and aggression, which I think comes from not being able to express our true opinions about matters of importance. It has uh, also comes from a pressure to act accepting or happy of all of the crazy that is going on around you. They don't want any deviation like it's, it's, it's like in total totalitarian societies where if you express displeasure when the leader glances over at you, you're in trouble. I mean, that's how science is now. And it's having a horrible, horrible impact on our society. I don't know, Doctor. I seem to get angry for no reason at all. Well, don't worry about it. I'm sure I can help you. Oh, yeah! <laughs> Andy, tell me, uh, what is your TV show really like? Uh, well, do you know what good, clean fun really is? No, what good is it? <laughs> and I want to say something here, just uh, before I forget. A lot of people, I, I think a lot of people, believe that it's mostly left-leaning and liberal people who uh, have fallen for all of this. There are authoritarians on the left and the right, and that's who we're dealing with. I would so love to heal the left-right divide on this issue. I'd so love for us to come together because it is not liberal or conservative issue. It's a freedom issue. And we can't, we, we can't just empower the bullies to the point where all of us are going to be uh, basically caged up in our own bodies for the rest of our lives. This is insanity. Okay, so when all of those came together, we got socially acceptable mass hysteria. That's where we're at. And Matthias Desmet talks about that. It doesn't have to make sense. Once you've got this frenzied mob, they'll do anything. It's socially acceptable, right? So to wrap up, we are now left with bent science because the institutions are so filled with bent people. Look, we need a way out of this. I don't know. Um, I don't know if we can save some of the cult members, some of the hysterics. And Matthias Desmet, I think, says that there's about 14% who you will never, they will never snap out of it. They're done. They're gone. Uh, but we can get a lot of other people. We have to move away from collectivism 
back to personal responsibility. Because in collectivism, you get scapegoating. In um, individual responsibility, whether you do it through uh, Christ, uh, religion or faith, or you do it through self-examination, it's got to be done. Of course, the question is how. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. What we just heard from Polly St. George was a great overview of how some of the social conditions described by Professor Matthias Desmet were already firmly entrenched in the zeitgeist of recent history. I certainly agree with her call to reject collectivism and embrace personal responsibility, but I do have to address an issue that she raised with which I disagree. This keeps coming up over and over again. This was essentially the same epistemological error made by people like Chris Skye, Jordan Peterson, and a whole host of bloggers who continue to make observations based on some version of there are authoritarians on the left and the right. We would like to heal each side. It's a freedom issue. It's not a left and right issue. We're not a liberal versus conservative issue or some ongoing version of that viewpoint. So that begs the unasked question. Are there authoritarians for freedom? And if so, are they on the left or on the right? And if not, where is freedom on this political spectrum? Now, of course, authoritarianism and freedom are contradictory concepts, so authoritarians for freedom can't be found anywhere on any political spectrum or polarity because they do not exist. It's possible that Polly St. George holds the view that there are both authoritarians and individualists for freedom on both the left and right side of the political polarity, but this is an epistemological error because it obliterates the fundamental distinction between left and right, which is the use of force and coercion by the left versus freedom of choice and consent that exists on the right. We can't keep muddling these distinctions. Tyranny versus freedom. There is no compromising or healing possible between these two polar extremes. Yes, this is a freedom issue, but freedom sits alone on the right side of the political polarity. And, you know, I think that calling for a healing of the left and right, which I hear from so many people, is a way of sidestepping the reality that, you know, we the people are not united. The very purpose of having political polarities is to make us aware of this division, for better or worse. Which brings us back to the question of how can we move away from collectivism back to personal responsibility? It also brings us back to our earlier discussion on what is the most productive way to affect change. Well, as you might expect, this is a question that Ayn Rand herself was repeatedly called upon to address. And although I have cited some of the following passages before, I can't think of a better zeitgeist within which to heed Ayn Rand's advice in response to the question, what can one do? And in a 1972 essay by the same name, and which was published in her book, Philosophy Who Needs It, here's what she had to say, and I quote, What can one do? This question is frequently asked by people who are concerned about the state of today's world and want to correct it. More often than not, it is asked in a form that indicates the cause of their helplessness. What can one person do? If this is the way the question is posed, the answer is, he can't. 
No one can change a country single-handed. So the first question to ask is, why do people approach the problem this way? In the realm of man's consciousness, in the realm of ideas, they still tend to regard knowledge as irrelevant, and they expect to perform instantaneous miracles somehow, or they paralyze themselves by projecting an impossible goal. If you are seriously interested in fighting for a better world, begin by identifying the nature of the problem. The battle is primarily intellectual, philosophical, not political. Politics is the last consequence, the practical implementation of the fundamental metaphysical, epistemological, ethical ideas that dominate a given nation's culture. You cannot fight or change the consequences without fighting and changing the cause, nor can you attempt any practical implementation without knowing what it is you want to implement. In an intellectual battle, you do not need to convert everyone. History is made by minorities, or more precisely, history is made by intellectual movements, which are created by minorities. Who belongs to these minorities? Anyone who is able and willing actively to concern himself with intellectual issues. Here, it is not quantity, but quality that counts. The quality and consistency of the ideas that one is advocating. An intellectual movement does not start with organized action. Whom would one organize? A philosophical battle is a battle for men's minds, not an attempt to enlist blind followers. Ideas can be propagated only by men who understand them. An organized movement has to be preceded by an educational campaign, which requires trained, self-trained teachers, self-trained in the sense that a philosopher can offer the material of knowledge, but it is your own mind that has to absorb it. Such training is the first requirement for being a doctor during an ideological epidemic and the precondition of any attempt to quote-unquote change the world. Today, most people are acutely aware of our cultural ideological vacuum. They are anxious, confused, and groping for answers. Are you able to enlighten them? Are you immune from the fallout of the constant barrage aimed at the destruction of reason? And can you provide others with anti-missile missiles? A political battle is merely a skirmish fought with muskets. A philosophical battle is a nuclear war. And I have to stop there for a moment and quote. To reflect on those last few sentences, do they sound vaguely familiar? Being a doctor during an ideological epidemic, what a choice of words. I couldn't help but see the parallels of being a medical doctor in an ideological epidemic disguised as a health epidemic. Now, are they being encouraged to self-train and to apply their own knowledge and expertise to heal their patients? No, of course not. Quite the opposite. We're seeing this every day in the news. And what about, quote, the constant barrage aimed at the destruction of reason, end quote. This is all that our daily news is. A constant barrage destroying reason. And where have we heard terms similar to cultural ideological vacuum? They are anxious. They're confused. They're groping for answers. Dr. Desmet, anyone? Sounds like the zeitgeist of 1972 is a lot like the zeitgeist we're here in 2022. And consider the scale of the challenge that Rand is defining. Political muskets versus philosophical nukes. 
I recall when Maxime Bernier, upon his arrest for speaking in public, told the police officer arresting him that, that his only weapon was his philosophy, which, of course, was the very reason he was being arrested in the first place. Here's more from Ayn Rand. Quote, A few suggestions. Do not wait for a national audience. Speak on any scale open to you, large or small, to your friends, your associates, your professional organizations, or any legitimate public forum. You can never tell when your words will reach the right mind at the right time. You will see no immediate results, but it is of such activities that public opinion is made. Remember that. Do not proselytize indiscriminately. That is, do not force discussion or arguments on those who are not interested or not willing to argue. It is not your job to save everyone's soul. Above all, do not join the wrong ideological groups or movements in order to quote-unquote do something. By ideological in this context, I mean groups or movements proclaiming some vaguely generalized, undefined, and usually contradictory political goals. For example, the Conservative Party, which subordinates reason to faith and substitutes theocracy for capitalism, or the Libertarian Hippies, who subordinate reason to whims and substitute anarchism for capitalism. To join such groups means to reverse the philosophical hierarchy and to sell out fundamental principles for the sake of some superficial political action which is bound to fail. It means that you help the defeat of your ideas and the victory of your enemies. End quote. And note here Rand's reference to the proper purpose behind having a philosophical hierarchy, as per our earlier discussion, to determine the validity of a concept of action, not to prescribe some sort of ordered way in which to arrive at decisions or, or how you arrive at your philosophy. I continue, quote, it is a mistake to think that an intellectual movement requires some special duty or self-sacrificial effort on your part. It requires something much more difficult. A profound conviction that ideas are important to you and to your life. If you integrate that conviction to every aspect of your life, you will find many opportunities to enlighten others. These are some of the right things to do as often and as widely as possible. But the original question implied a search for some shortcut in the form of an organized movement. No shortcut is possible. It is too late for a movement of people who hold a conventional mixture of contradictory philosophical notions. It is too early for a movement of people dedicated to a philosophy of reason. But it is never too late or too early to propagate the right ideas except under a dictatorship. If a dictatorship ever comes to this country, it will be by the default of those who keep silent. We are still free enough to speak. Do we have time? No one can tell. But time is on our side because we have an indestructible weapon and an invincible ally if we learn how to use them. Reason and reality. End quote. And consider that when Rand wrote those insightful words of advice, there was no such thing as the internet or the ability of, yes, one single individual to influence an entire planet at the push of a button. We actually can speak to, quote, a national audience, end quote. You too can become a news and information source and thus develop your own support base of everything from consumers to activists. 
And who knows? Maybe you'll attract the attention of a few politicians along the way. But don't expect any of them to resolve anything. Oh, Humphrey, I've decided to respond to all this criticism about a scandal in the city. The press is demanding action. What are you proposing to do? I shall appoint someone. And when did you take this momentous decision? Today, when I read the papers. But when did you first think of it? Today, when I read the papers. <laughs> and for how long, may I ask, did you weigh the pros and cons of this decision? Not long. I decided to be decisive. Uh, Prime Minister, if I may say, I think you worry too much about what the papers say. <laughs> Only a civil servant could have made that remark, Bernard. <laughs> I have to worry about them, particularly with the party conference coming up. These rumours of a scandal just won't go away, you know. Well, let's not worry about it until it becomes something more than the rumour. I'd just like to show you the Cabinet agenda. No, not just now, Humphrey. This is rather more important. With respect, Prime Minister, it is not. The only way to understand the press is to remember that they pander to their readers' prejudices. Don't tell me about the press. I know exactly who reads the papers. The Daily Mirror is read by people who think they run the country. The Guardian is read by people who think they ought to run the country. <laughs> the Times is read by the people who actually do run the country. <laughs> Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people who run the country. <laughs> the Financial Times is read by people who own the country. <laughs> the Morning Star is read by people who think the country ought to be run by another country. <laughs> and the Daily Telegraph is read by people who think it is. <laughs> I'm Prime Minister. What about the people who read The Sun? The Sun readers don't care who runs the country as long as she's got big tits. <laughs> Well, it's just uh, the way your brow furrows when you're thinking. It's cute. I mean, not if you're playing poker, then it'd be deadly, but otherwise. Can I ask you a question? Shoot. Why are you here? You don't care about the victim, so you aren't here for justice. You don't care that the guy's aping your book, so you aren't here because you're outraged. So what is it, Rick? Are you here to annoy me? I'm here for the story. The story? Why those people? Why those murders? Sometimes there is no story. Sometimes the guy is just a psychopath. There's always a story. Always a chain of events makes everything make sense. Take you, for example. Under normal circumstances, you should not be here. Most smart, good-looking women become lawyers, not cops. And yet, here you are. Why? I don't know, Rick. You're the novelist, you tell me. Well, you're not bridge and tunnel. No trace of the bros when you talk, so that means Manhattan. That means money. You went to college, probably a pretty good one. You had options. Yeah, you had lots of options. Better options. More socially acceptable options. And you still chose this. That tells me something happened. Not to you. You're wounded, but you're not that wounded. It was somebody you cared about. It was someone you loved. And you probably could have lived with that, but the person responsible was never caught. And that's Detective Beckett is why you're here. 
cute trick. Don't think you know me. The point is, there's always a story. You just have to find it. Yes, there's always a story. In the absence of a credible fourth estate, getting the real story is an effort you have to undertake on your own. Now, I'm here for the story, and it goes like this. History is made by the people who write it, not by the people who lived it. The story, the narrative, supersedes the reality. History is a collection of stories and narratives about the past, and if somebody didn't write them, we would have no knowledge of that history. These stories also become representative of a society's values. Whether that story is the Bible, the Koran, or Atlas Shrugged, to the extent that they're accepted and officially adopted by a society, they become the uniting force binding that society together. But what is important is that the recording of history, the telling of a story, is what becomes the collective's memory of its own past. And if I may borrow a phrase, all quote-unquote mass formations gravitate towards this black hole of human collective memory, the culture, the zeitgeist, the stories that hold a given collective, a mass, together. I open today's show with the warning that under any tyranny, nothing blows over, that to expect this COVID crisis to blow over at some point in time is delusional. Under tyranny, nothing blows over because there are people with wills and intentions driving that tyranny. COVID is just one of their narratives, one of their stories. Climate change is another. Their stories are the propaganda of tyranny. For those who cannot deal with this reality, ignorance is bliss because, in a way, it provides plausible deniability of one's own responsibility in a given circumstance. But if you knew they were crooks... We didn't. But you could have made inquiries. You don't make inquiries of that sort in the city. Ignorance is safety. It's not a crime to be deceived. No, it's not a crime to be deceived, but there are circumstances when it's a crime to pretend to be deceived when you're not. So you want to be productive with your political activities and efforts? The world is in a confused state because so many do not know how to deal with the clutter of irrelevancies and complexities with which they are faced. Non-sequitur and irrationality abounds. The challenge is to learn how to construct a valid narrative, one that can be sustained by the known facts and reason, and to use it as an effective weapon for freedom. It ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble, it's what they do know that just ain't so. And ain't that just right? Which is exactly what we will be when we all get together again next week. Join us as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Boy, I sure have a smart cat. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, it's the cat's whole future is what? The cat's whole future. Well, it's a smart cat, I'm smart, thinking. Smart you know, I'm thinking cat. of sending that cat to Harvard Law School. Well, that's the most stupid thing I ever heard. How can you teach a cat to be a lawyer? Well, it's a lot easier than teaching a lawyer to be a cat. <laughs>
Yeah. Wacker, I think you're onto something there. <laughs> if Ella Fitzgerald married Alan Funt, she'd be an elephant. <laughs> Goldie, when you drink martinis, does your tongue burn? I don't know. I've never been drunk enough to light it. 